Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. How to describe Amy Gravino, my guest today, force of nature comes to mind. Diagnosed with autism at the age of 11, Amy is a leader on sexuality, autism, and neurodiversity in sex education. And to that end, she is president of ASCOT, which offers autism consulting, college coaching, and mentoring services for various organizations, schools, individuals on the spectrum, and their families. She is also a relationship coach at the Center for Adult Autism Services at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Amy's given TED Talks, spoken twice at the United Nations on World Autism Awareness Day, and lectures on a variety of topics related to this developmental disorder. She's also an award-winning writer, whose work has been featured in Spectrum, the leading online news source for autism research, Reader's Digest, as well as special ed textbooks. Amy's on the board of directors of Specialist Turner USA, Yes, She Can, as well as the Scientific Advisory Board of Simons Foundation Powering Autism Research. She's featured in the powerful documentary In a Different Key, The Story of Autism, an extraordinary narrative history of the disorder, whose co-director, writer, producer, Karen Sucker, I had the pleasure of interviewing a while back. So let's meet this classy, creative woman who's not afraid to speak her mind, Amy, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Oh, hi, Sandy. Thank you so much for having me here today. We're going to go back to when you were 11 years old. As I said in the introduction, that's when you were diagnosed with being on the spectrum. Talk to me about what that was like. Well, I always referred to there being this kind of threshold before I was diagnosed and after, whereby before I was diagnosed, my mentality, my way of viewing the world is, why don't other people see things the way that I do? What's wrong with them? To, mm -hmm. why don't I see things the way that other people do? What's wrong with me? And part of that was the incipience of puberty, the beginnings of adolescence, and that age when, you know, you click start to form middle school, you know, was almost happening. And you're starting to form your identity. And I had no sense of who I was, except mm -hmm. that I was different. And I was in the room when the psychiatrist told my parents that I was on a spectrum. It was never hidden from me. But the word autism didn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. When you're 11 years old, that word doesn't really resonate, and especially at a time, 1994, when there was not a national conversation happening on autism. There was not a cognizance of what autism was the way that there is now. Um, we were a long way off from a different key, unfortunately. And so I only knew that I was different and that different was not acceptable as my peers and my teachers and the world were sort of let me know on a constant basis. So was it that obvious that you were different or was it more insidious? Did you suffer at the hands of some of your peers being bullied or or ignored? What was that like? Well, in a strange way, it was both. It was both obvious and insidious. Uh, when you're in elementary school, the bullying is more overt, you know, exclusion from activities in, in school or being called names or things like that. And then when you get to, to middle school, the bullying becomes more insidious, becomes more emotional bullying. Girls in particular bully in a way that's different from boys. Right. I was bullied by, by both. I was, you know, bullied by boys more overtly, but with the girls, it was more like emotional manipulation. It was this one girl who, for some reason, I wanted desperately to be friends with. Would, would treat me nicely one day and then treat me like dirt the next day. And I didn't understand what she was doing. 
And I just kind of kept throwing myself on the proverbial fire. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be validated. And it it, it just wasn't happening. And it and the bullying was relentless. It, It began when I was around in third grade and it continued through senior year of high school. And yet, oh my were, God, it, it did. It did. And yet there were still moments where I wondered which was better or worse being bullied or being ignored. Because if you were being bullied, at least the kids were acknowledging you existed. But yeah, Right. Even though it was negative attention. Exactly. But being ignored was like, I might as well not have even been there. And I often felt that way that I just didn't count that. Once that you found out that you were diagnosed with autism, how did that change your life? What did that mean? Uh, well, again, as I say, I was 11 years old and it didn't really change much uh, in, the, in the sense of my day to day life. Again, there was so little in terms of resources and information. I remember you know, walking into my parents' bedroom one night and looking at the books on my mom's night table and saying, Mom, why do you have so many books that start with the letter A? Because they were all about <laughs> They're all about autism. They're all about Asperger's syndrome, which was the that diagnosis back then before it was changed. She was trying to get her hands on every piece of information that she could, but but nobody knew what to do with me because yeah, there was a girl in my grade I remember who had cerebral palsy, and it was visible that there was you know something going on with her. You could see that physically she had some challenges with her speech. And so she was bullied a little bit, but more or less was left alone. But then me, I didn't look like I had something quote wrong with me. Right. And so so the, the expectations were that I should be like everybody else, but I wasn't. And I tried so hard to be. And the more I tried, the more I could not be. So the diagnosis didn't really, it, it didn't really change anything. It, yes, we had this label, we had this answer, but we did it, but what would that would mean and how that would have a shape on my life? It would, it would take much longer. It was a long journey from you know the diagnosis to hating the diagnosis when I was a teenager, wanting nothing to do with it, wanting to distance myself from it, saying that this is the cause of everything that's wrong with me, that there's autism Amy and there's Amy Amy. And if yeah. autism Amy would go away, everything would be fine and I'd have a boyfriend and I'd be happy mm. to finally realizing there's only one Amy. There's only <laughs> me. I am me. Were you navigating this by yourself for all intents and purposes? I mean, what, where were your parents in this? Where were any other professionals in this? Or they just gave you a label and then said, have a nice day. <laughs> well, so I did have that, that psychiatrist who diagnosed me. I wound up, he became my kind of regular psychiatrist who I would see a couple of times a year. I think it was at that point, maybe more frequently, I would receive therapy from him. The interesting thing was that when I was diagnosed, my father, I think it made him take a few steps back and reexamine his own life through a new lens and realize that he's on the spectrum too, but he never knew. Wow. And so, and so, but because of that, because of all this new information and, and all this, he kind of checked out emotionally. Like he was there for me in the sense of driving me to violin lessons and doing this and that, but emotionally there, there was kind of a void, kind of an absence. And so I did go to some professionals. I did go to social skills groups. I had biofeedback, which was a type of therapy where I sat in a chair and they put electrodes on the side of my head. And I had to move balloons on a computer screen over a wall with my brain caves. And but it was all these things. Nothing was really specifically for autism, like the social skills classes. There were kids there who had other issues, other emotional issues or behavioral challenges. And so it wasn't really specifically geared toward that. So and at one point I, I was diagnosed with depression when I was 12 years old because I was suicidal. I, I came, uh. the, the, the whole impetus that set my mother looking for help initially was me coming home in the fourth grade, putting down my backpack and saying, I feel like killing myself. 
And I don't remember mm-hmm. this. I have no memory of this, but that mm-hmm. was what sent my mom looking for help. And so I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I went on Prozac at the age of 12. I voluntarily went off it at the age of 15. Um, so we, there were a lot of things that, you know, we tried. But you, in a sense, and I got this from watching you in the film too, in a way you charted your own course. I did. Even at a younger age, as you were trying to figure out what the fuck is going on here. <laughs> hey, but on the other hand, you took matters into your own hands, didn't you? Well, I really did. I, I didn't really have a choice um, because I was trying to navigate and, and get by in a world that wasn't built for someone like me, that wasn't made for someone like me to succeed and thrive. And so I did. I didn't, I never had a straight line from A to B. I've never had, you know, any idea what the future would hold or if I would have a future. When I thought about life after high school, I did I couldn't even picture anything. I couldn't imagine what my life would be. And, and the only career goal I had for many, many years was to write poetry in a cottage in the Italian Alps. And the, <laughs> not a and bad, not a bad thing to it's, do. <laughs> it's not, it's not a bad thing to do, but the problem with writing poetry in a cottage in the Italian Alps is that you do it alone. Right. You are course. by yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that was my view of myself for a long time was that I had nothing to offer the world. I had nothing that I could give to society that what I had to say was not something anyone wanted to hear, which was why I became a writer in the first place as an outlet and a means of escape from the world around me. I began to write again, sort of in defiance of some of the stereotypes of autism where the strengths are supposed to be in math and science. I was terrible right, at math right. and science. I'm I always, that in common. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. exactly. So writing became my, my outlet and my refuge and, Writing helped me kind of begin to blaze that trail just a little bit. And then I began to do the public speaking actually when I was 14 years old, because my mother was on the board of an autism organization on Long Island where I grew up and they had conferences and I would be on this panel, this team panel there. So that kind of began my journey into public speaking, but all these disparate threads, you know, that was happening then. And then I was also writing and then I began writing erotic fiction, which helped me to discover my sexuality and all of that kind of ended up leading to where I am now. And I didn't even know it. So when you when you graduated from high school, did you know that you wanted to go to college and that you wanted to pursue, let's say, a writing career? Well, I'm, I'm the daughter of two teachers, so not going to college was not an option. That was right. absolutely <laughs> always going to happen. And I did my bachelor's degree is in English. Mm-hmm. And that's what I that's what I was interested in pursuing was was becoming a writer. And then to, to, to quote Bugs Bunny, I took a left turn at Albuquerque, or I didn't take a left turn at Albuquerque, and, I, and I, I wound up in something very different when I went to graduate school. But my aspiration up to that point, to even through graduating, was to be a writer. So, And how was that transition for you between college and grad school on the social level? Did that improve? And I would think on some level it would have to because the way you described it couldn't have gotten any worse from high school, right? It had to, had to oh. be better, no? It, it, it was. It was exponentially better. Um, I had kind of a fresh start in college. You know, I, my high school... You redefine yourself, right, in a way? Well, it's not, not even redefining, just defining myself, period, mm-hmm. because the, mm-hmm. the only... The only concept I had of myself up to then was what my peers thought of me. If they right. said I was a psycho, I was a psycho. If they said I was a retard, I was a retard. They said I was ugly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was ugly. Mm-hmm. I had no sense of, of who I was. I had to build Amy Gravino from the ground up. And so mm-hmm. 
but by some stroke of fortune, I lived in the girls' dorm my freshman year, and a girl. Lived Where did you go to college? I I went to King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. And and this girl who lived on the same floor as me had an older brother who was on the spectrum, and so she immediately understood me better than anybody else, and we became friends, and and that friendship was a, a north star for me through my college years, and. And then I wound up having a boyfriend a little later on in my freshman year, which I'd never had before. And that was mm-hmm. a whole new, new experience. And that was all I had desperately wanted in high school. And suddenly I had it and didn't know what to sure. do with it. Yeah. Like, 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 <laughs> Maybe like this adult. is not so great after all. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I call him my starter boyfriend because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, college was enormously better than high school. It, it came with its own sets of challenges and you know, having two groups of friends all of a sudden and having friends who didn't like my boyfriend, that was a whole new thing. What do I do with that? And, oh, but, yeah. Yeah. So, but it was, it was much better. Is, is it like saying, oh, hi, I'm Amy Gravino and I grew up in Long Island and I'm Catholic or I'm Jewish or I'm this. Would you announce to people that you were on the spectrum? In, in college? And yes. Oh. Um. I, I, I don't think I ever, <laughs> it never really hid itself. I don't think, I think it was, you know, it came, it kind of walked in the room with me, I feel like. And I, because I was, was so desperate to want to be able to be myself, that just sort of came along with it. I never felt a need to hide it. I don't think. Uh-huh. And, and many women on the spectrum do engage in what's called camouflaging or masking, which which is concealing their symptoms of autism or imitating other women, neurotypical women, to to try to pass and get by. And I'm kind of a failed masker. I'm I'm constitutionally incapable of being anyone other than myself. So with with my first boyfriend, I don't even remember if I actually told him or not. I think it was just sort of like it wasn't even something I felt like I had to announce. It was just like this is. Mm-hmm. Just, this is me. You know, mm-hmm. this is inherently me. I can't not make this part of who I am. Or if you're confused by my behavior, there's an explanation for it. I mean, in terms of the fact that I may yeah. do something slightly different than somebody else. I mean, I did have to kind of disclose and advocate in an academic setting. I did have to tell my professors because in college, you don't have an IEP like you have in high school, which is right. An, it, right. right. So you have to advocate for yourself and get the supports that you need. And that presented a, a whole other set of challenges because I didn't want to feel like I, I needed to ask for help. I felt ashamed to feel like I needed help. So it was, it was hard in, in, in that sense. And, and also not knowing what supports I needed. I don't know how I study to this day. I don't know how I, how I study. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that I needed extended time on tests. I was able to get that or take the test in the disabilities office instead of in the classroom. But other than that, you know, there, there's there's a degree of self-awareness that is required for advocating for yourself, be it in an academic setting, be it in a relationship, be it friendships. And that just began to develop when I was in college. I was just at the beginning of developing that sense of self-awareness. So it, it took time. You know, but you know what, what gets me, Amy, because I say this ad nauseum to the guests on my show about a huge tie that binds all the women is this strong sense of self that you might not have happened at might not have had at age 11 or 14 or whatever. But boy, you cultivated that in a <laughs> big way. 
I did. I did. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, part of that is a reaction to the rest of the world always telling me who I am, because that's what life is when you're autistic. You grow up with everybody telling you this is what you struggle with. This is what you need help with. This is what you're bad at. You don't learn to listen to your instincts. You don't learn to listen, listen to that little voice inside because you're always told, well, no, your instincts are wrong. You don't understand what's happening. You don't, you know, and, and so it's, it, it took me time to just shove all those voices out of my head and replace it with that my voice in yeah. my head. It took a lot, a lot of time. of hard work that you basically did on your own. I did. Yes. Yes, I did. So when you graduated from college and got your master's, did you know at some point that you were going to be an advocate, that you were going to be out there exposing autism and exposing myths and changing minds and changing mm. hearts. Did you feel that that was a goal of yours? Well, what, what really kind of was the catalyst for me realizing that that could be a goal was that in 2005, I was filmed for a documentary called Normal People Scare Me. And it was, it was directed by a young man on the spectrum and his mother. They co-directed it. And there are interviews with over 60 people on the spectrum. And, and they, they took this film all around the world. They took it to the Middle East. They took it to Europe. They took it everywhere. And they would come and tell me that of all the people in the film, the person who kept getting asked about the most, other than the young man himself who directed it, was me. I said, I said, me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was so surprised. And it was the first time that anyone had wanted to, to put my voice on a platform like that, number one. But then the, also the first time that I, began to realize that my voice could help people, that, that it could make a difference somehow. And I'd never felt that before. I'd never experienced that before, you know, in, in this broad sort of way. It was very so that, empowering. It was, it was. It was very empowering. It, was, it changed my life. After this exposure, then what? So, well, after I, after I graduated college, I moved across the country, 3,000 miles away, uh, fell in love, lost my virginity, did all the things that you do when you're tw- when you're 22 years old, 23. <laughs> you moved across country because of him? Because of him, basically, mm-hmm. which was a very bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I wound up getting my heart broken, as you do, because it turned out he had a girlfriend he'd forgotten to tell me about. And was, oh, Jesus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was sleeping with half the women in the city of Seattle, Washington. And- oh, I guess you picked the popular guy. <laughs> God. Well, popular in what sense? I don't know, because yeah. when, I, when I look when I look back now, all I'm like is, well, what was I thinking? What mm. was I possibly thinking? Mm. Oh, goodness. But um, so, you know, that was growth. I needed also, I think, to get me to the next place because I started graduate school in 2007. I moved out to Seattle in 2005, came back here in 2007. To, to go to graduate school. And so while I was out there, I did begin to do some speak. I did do more speaking. I did do a little bit more. But again, my focus was largely, you know, kind of on this guy and that whole situation and trying to cope with getting an email from him saying your first time was the grossest thing I ever did. You were just a retarded whore that I fucked. You meant nothing to me. Yep. Yep. And, and the fact that I was this easy target because all these other women were calling his girlfriend and saying how great he was in bed. I was the the Shamil who fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his girlfriend would call me and threaten to kill me if I didn't leave town and wanted to know all these details of our conversations. And I was just absolutely such an easy target and, and vulnerable in a way I didn't even understand. 
And I think going through that and, and coming out of it the other side, because the, 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 I mean, it took me, I would say, fully six or seven years to get past what he did to me. But the, mm. after the harassment ended, I always remember this. I got an instant message from him and he said, sorry for ruining your life. And I remember sitting there at my computer and in, in this whole process of, of everything, I had been sad. I've been heartbroken. I've been hurt. But for the first time, I got angry. Uh-huh. I got gen- genuinely full bodied angry. And I mm-hmm. thought, fuck you. How dare yeah. you give yourself that, that much credit? You didn't ruin my life. I'm still here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so that realization that that I could, get, you know, because the truth is the only way to explain to somebody, to, the only way to know how to deal with a broken heart is to have your heart broken. Mm-hmm. You, you can read books about it. You can write poems about it. But the only real teacher is experience. And so that was a lot of kind of life learning that I had at that time there. And, you know, to come back. And and the thing is, also, when I found all this out, by the way, this is how much of a coward he was. It was on the phone and or on the computer. He never talked to me face to face. There was no face to face conversation there. I've not seen him in 15 years. That's 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 how long it's been. There was nothing. And and so. So you were out there because of him, but then were you there just completely alone? Did you were you able to cultivate other relationships in terms of female friends? Well, I started to after things went, you know, pear shaped with him. Yeah, <laughs> after things went pear shaped with him, I did start to cultivate a few friendships and started to get out of my apartment a little bit more. Kind of the best time of, of my time being there was near the end, near right before I moved, because I did start to make some connections. But before that, I was just very wrapped up in him. And when you have rose-colored glasses on, all the flags look red is the thing. And I, I didn't get that either at the time. And so everybody else, you know, 3,000 miles away, my friends and, and even my parents are like, oh, I don't know about this guy. Something doesn't sound right. I don't know. And I, and I said, oh, you don't know him. You're there and I'm here. You don't know. They mm-hmm. were right. They were 100 okay. percent right. Mm-hmm. But I had to learn the hard way, which is sort of the theme of my life is learning things the hard way. Unfortunately, well, but that only adds all these layers to who you are. So when you came back, did you know at some point that this was going to be a career move for you, that this is what you were going to focus on sexuality and neurodiversity and education and that you were going to do for people what was never done for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew that I wanted to work with young adults and adults on the spectrum because much of what we see when we think of autism, much of what is presented out there is still kind of focused on children and what's called early intervention, which is you know working with young children. And there's a lack, there's a dearth of supports and services for adults on the spectrum. So I knew that was what I wanted to focus on. And when I was in graduate school, you know, for my thesis, we had to design and run a study using the principles of applied behavior analysis, which is what my degree is in. And I chose for my study, well, all my classmates were doing their studies with children, with kids they were working with in in schools or whatnot. I chose to uh, teach to adults on the spectrum how to ask someone out on a date. That was what I was interested in. So again, there's that thread reappearing again with dating and with that being an interest of mine. And I started my business in 2010, which is around when I graduated. And initially it was to be a college coach for students on the spectrum. I got the certification and 
then I began presenting on sexuality in 2013. A colleague of mine, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, who was also in, in a different key, has been presenting on this topic for many, many years and invited me to present with him. So he did the clinical side and I talked about it from the personal side. I talked about uh, my experiences. So I quite literally talk about my sex life for a living. That's kind of what I do. Um, and, 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 and everything I just told you about the guy in Seattle, I talk about that for every, every single presentation that I do pretty much. So that was the beginning of that. And as the years went on from there, a lot of people were doing the college thing, but not a lot of people were doing the sex thing. So that started to just overtake everything that I was doing. It just it became bigger and bigger. The need grew bigger and bigger as time went on. And it ultimately, again, it just tied back into this thread that's run through my life with writing erotic fiction when I was 14, with starting a fan site for the monkeys, not the primate, but the band from the 1960s that has erotic fiction about the monkeys to my thesis, uh, you know, and, and now, and now to this. And so it all kind of wound up connecting and has become the thing about which I am most passionate. <laughs> also acknowledging and giving permission to young adults to be who they want to be and to have that freedom and that you're just as wonderful, attractive, all of those things. I mean, I can relate to certain things because I, I mean, I'm not on the spectrum, but I grew up in high school. I was popular in the sense that everybody thought, oh, see, she's so funny. We really like her. But I wasn't <laughs> petite and blonde and a cheerleader. And that right. was, you know, my cross to bear. They weren't banging down my door to date me. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, and then that's me, too. And more, so many times when I give my presentations, I have people come up to me after and say, I'm not on the spectrum, but I totally related to that. I went through something similar. I, I know what that was like. And that's kind of the whole nexus of this, too, is, is, is letting neurotypicals know that even though there are many differences between neurotypicals and those of us on the spectrum, there's a lot of similarities, too, that we feel many of the same things. We go through many of the same things and, and kind of taking away that, that sense of other that is often ascribed to autism, kind of taking, you know, taking away this thing of that we must be so different that we can't be related to because it's not true. And so that's what I try to emphasize in my presentations and in my book that I'm writing right now, which is called The Naughty Audi, which is a memoir of my experiences with dating as a woman on the spectrum. And I think that it will reach a lot of people in that same way. I want to talk about Love on the Spectrum, the series on Netflix, just on a very personal level. When I started watching it, I was uncomfortable in the sense of, is this voyeurism? That was one of the first things that hit me. But on the other hand, I was so engaged with the men and women who were on the the show about who are looking for love. And this takes place in Australia. And I, I want to talk to you about your take on that. Is that a positive thing to get these men and women out there? Everybody deserves to be loved. Or is it more of a lascivious kind of thing? Mm. Well, I, I first became aware of Love on the Spectrum last year. I was initially reluctant to watch it because of some comments I had seen on Twitter from autistic individuals saying that it did have that kind of voyeuristic element to it, like you're saying, and that it, it did seem to truck in certain stereotypes or in kind of, you know, this very infantilizing sort of lens that it was being shown through. And I only wound up seeing it because they put out a casting call for a U.S. version of the show. They're looking to do a U.S. version. And no less than four people sent me that that email. And so finally, I was like, all right, fine, sign from God. So I, <laughs> I, I, I emailed the producers 
And um, I wound up having a meeting with them over Zoom. And I think I'm the only person in the world in the world who doesn't have Netflix. So they sent me a link to the episodes so that I could watch them. And so I took a bunch of notes while watching them and I was able to give them, you know, some feedback on that. And I definitely, you know, one of the things that stood out to me was that the dating coach they had, this woman named Jody, was giving neurotypical dating tips to these autistic couples. Now, you know, again, another kind of unrealistic uh, facet of the show was that all of the couples were either autistic, autistic, or autistic and another disability, but there were no mixed neurology couples. So like somebody on the spectrum and a neurotypical person. The phrase for someone who's not on the spectrum is neurotypical. Neurotypical, yes. Or holistic is another term, A-L-L-I-S-T-I-C, but I, I tend to use neurotypical. Okay. Um, but so, yes, they didn't have any couplings in that. And so it didn't make sense to me that this coach was giving these couples these tips and I could see them struggling to try to follow some of her advice. I saw, I remember one young man who was really having a tough time. He was trying to follow what she was saying and it was very difficult to watch. Um, and then when he stopped doing that, stopped trying to follow what she was saying and just was himself, he got so much more comfortable and it was much more enjoyable to watch. It was, it was a noticeable difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, another, another thing that kind of perturbed me was um, one of the couples in one of the later episodes uh, I, I think it was a producer asked them, have you consummated your relationship? And I was like, why are they asking them that? Oh, like, uh-huh. yeah. it was, mm. they didn't ask that of any of the other couples in the show. It was, maybe it was to see if they knew what consummating meant, but it was a very strange, intrusive question. It was, mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't understand what the, what the purpose of that was. But again, you know, the thing about reality TV is that it's, it's not reality. There has to be some level of, of, of making things contrived for the sake of, of the show. So that you're putting people in these situations on these dates. It's, there's always, it's, it's not going to be 100% what we might see in, in, in real life. And it's going to be, I just, I, I just remember, you know, watching some of the dates and just feeling like, how would I feel if I had a camera stuck in my face when yeah. I'm trying to be on a date? Yeah. With somebody I don't know, you know, that, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you're expecting like perform monkey, perform monkey. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you don't feel that uh, a series like this is providing a public service? Well, I, I think on, on one level, it is it is showing autistic people exactly as we are. In a sense, it is, you know, you have people representing themselves and being who they are, but it's still definitely made for neurotypicals by neurotypicals it's definitely you know through that lens and when i spoke to the producers i actually uh spoke to them about the possibility of my being on the show not as a as a dating participant but as a coach Mm. um as you know Mm. that that i might be someone who knows where a lot of these folks are coming from and could, could relate to them a little bit more i might be able to provide some advice that would be more in line with what would be helpful for an autistic Jody, the sexologist. uh, Yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. So, yeah, I think it's a step in the right direction. I, I I certainly, you know, there were certainly moments that made me cry that were very, that I resonated with very strongly. Um, But it's, it's not, I mean, nothing is perfect. There is no perfect representation. I don't think yet anywhere, but um, I, I think, I hope that if they, could, if they do decide to pursue a U.S. version, which I don't know what's happening because of COVID and everything, but if they do decide, I hope it will go in a better direction from here. 
to switch gears for a second and talk about in a different key the documentary i think what was so stunning the extensiveness and what i did not know there was so much information and who's marginalized and who isn't marginalized and, and all of these these stereotypes that we have or um, or preconceived notions about people on the spectrum or maybe I don't know that I know someone who's on the spectrum, which is what you're trying to do to educate neurotypicals. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and by the way, now you do know someone on the spectrum because you know me. Yes, and, that's, uh, that's right. <laughs> I was very happy to be part of In a Different Key. I think it's an extraordinary story. I think you know, to, bring, to bring something like that from the book to the screen is, is a huge task. Um, and I think John... Donovan and Karen Zucker have done a great job. That is the very thing is that often you might hear the phrase, you know, the face of autism. What is the face of autism? There is no one face. There's no one way that autism looks like. That's, that's kind of the whole point is that there are so many different presentations of autism, but where, where someone is, you know, is not necessarily, not necessarily an indicator of where they will end up. So if people looked at me when I was first diagnosed, I don't know that they would have thought that I would be the woman I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that when we hear the word autism, when we get that diagnosis, we assume that somebody is always going to be the way they are forever. That autistic people can compromise change. And they're just going to be compromised. It, yeah. Yes. Well, um, but that, that, that they just can't, that we as autistic people can't grow or change. Exactly. And we can, we absolutely can. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I think in a different key kind of highlighted that also highlighted that people are, are in different places. And even, even in, in our lives, even when we get older and, and I'm, I'm in a different place, obviously, than I was when I was 11 years old, but I still struggle. That doesn't stop. The struggles just change. Mm. They take a different shape when you're an adult. I shouldn't be struggling with the same things I struggled with when I was 11. I shouldn't. I'm a grown up now. So mm-hmm. now I have, I have different challenges mm-hmm. you know and and people tend to not see that you know we, we have this tendency there are often in diagnostic categorizations we, we hear the labels of high functioning autism and low functioning autism and those are not very helpful a lot of the time because high functioning ignores somebody's challenges and struggles and low functioning ignores somebody's strengths, strengths. And yeah part of your work is making those changes and is that like the myth of Sisyphus pushing a rock up a mountain. I, I appreciate the reference because my father is a retired Latin teacher, so I know the reference very well. <laughs> um, I have certain references that I use ad nauseum. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> it is like that. The reason that it, it's not as overwhelming as it was when I was younger is that I no longer feel like I'm alone. I'm, I, you know, there's. There's all these hands, even if I can't see them, there's all these hands that are beside me, helping me to move that boulder. And and for so long growing up, the only hands I felt and saw on it were mine. And the yeah. boulder felt much heavier. So now that boulder is still a boulder, but it's lighter. And it's lighter because of the community that I have found that I've built for myself. That, you know, was not something that I was born into or that was handed to me, but that I had to find Yeah, but you worked hard at that. Nobody did this stuff for you. And that's why force of nature is a very apt way to describe you. All that you have done, coaching and mentoring and and knowing you've been there and done that. And maybe 
you can't prevent that from happening to other people, but what a support system you can provide for, and I'm assuming both men and women. Yes, yes, both men and women, although there, there are, you know, challenges and things that are unique to, to each and especially to women on the spectrum. Right. Um, who are often, unfortunately, misdiagnosed and underdiagnosed as being on the spectrum, which we learned a little bit from in a different key. And and so I but I do I offer supports for for both. And, um, you know, it's exactly what you said. Maybe I can't prevent what happened to me from happening to someone else, but I can be that support system. I can be you know, that person who, who can try to help when there was nobody who could really help me that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's also the fact of that if I'd had someone when I was younger, who was older, who was like me, I could see that there, there was a future when I didn't know if there was one. And this would tell me that, yes, there is. Do you do any work with younger people? Well, how, how young are we talking? Well, I'm talking about, you know, maybe the, the middle schoolers and the high schoolers. I will. I, I do offer some some mentoring in that regard. Um, it's a little trickier to do kind of the sexuality stuff. Being comfortable in your own skin when it comes to sexuality. Um, well, it's 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 much 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 more than that. It's um, because many of the of the things that we just take for granted when it comes to you know sex ed or, or teaching you know sexuality are not there for autistic individuals. So in schools, um, sex ed is opt. Uh, out for for neurotypical students it's assumed that your child's going to get it and you can opt them out for students on the spectrum it's opt-in so it's not assumed that an mm-hmm. autistic student is going to get sex education the parent has to choose for them to receive it mm-hmm. and many don't many many don't think that their child needs sex education many many people feel that individuals with autism are not interested in sex or are largely asexual which is something that's perpetuated by the media and stereotypes in the I media have a significant other. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 so it perpetuates that, that issue. Um, and, and so it's, it's about learning and, and teaching skills, but it is also about that feeling comfortable in one's skin as, as well. It's, I try to merge the both of them when I, when I give my presentations talking about my journey and my experience, but then also what I've tried to do to help teach these skills and, and what the research needs to do more of, because there is so little research on autism and sexuality. It's considered so taboo um, in, in the scientific community, unfortunately. Because you're just so, not entitled to have a sex life? Well, I mean, that's part of it. And, you know, part of it is what I what I had said about the infantilization, which is that mm-hmm. many, pe- many people tend to see autistic adults as just children in big bodies. Yeah, like you, yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll hear people say, you know, he's 20 years old with the mentality of a five-year-old. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. he's 20 years old with the mentality of a 20-year-old with his particular challenges and desires and strengths and and everything and it ultimately comes down to safety too if if we have conversations about autism and sexuality it's always almost always framed in the lens of safety and keeping people safe if you want to keep people safe though in my opinion you have to empower them you right. have to give them give them information give people knowledge it's not going to make your child go out and have sex it's going to give them the tools they need to succeed and thrive and make the same choices as our neurotypical peer, tools that they don't have otherwise, that we would otherwise struggle with tremendously. Mm-hmm. So, Where do you do most of your public speaking? Well, prior to the pandemic, I was traveling all over. I, I had gone to Paris. I'd been to Cabo San Lucas in Mexico. I was actually uh, being asked to go to India to do, speak at their Autism at Work Summit. Um, and that was supposed to be in 2020, and that wound up no, not happening. Right. But, but 
but they're having it virtually. I'm actually speaking at it tonight. <laughs> Should there, the, all the accolades be on the United States in terms of how it handles well, people I, on the spectrum? I mean, the United States is certainly ahead in a lot of ways. You know, different countries are in different places in terms of their understanding of autism and their 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 knowledge. And um, I mean, you have some countries where autism is still viewed as demonic possession. People just don't know. There's just no mm-hmm. education. There's just no knowledge of uh, an understanding of what autism actually is. And it causes you great harm to autistic people who are forced to undergo exorcisms or, you know, beatings or who knows what else. Crazy. Um, it, I mean, it is, but it just it reflects how important you know knowledge and information is. But knowledge and information is also not enough. We have knowledge here in in, in the U.S. We have that information, but we have to take that and do take turn it into action. We have to talk about including autistic people in all facets of life, and that is not where we're at yet in the U.S. You know, we every April is Autism Awareness Month, so we have Autism Awareness Month. Now it's starting to be called Autism Acceptance Month. So we're moving to acceptance. But the next step after acceptance is appreciation and Mm -hmm. action, as Mm -hmm. as my good friend Stephen Shore says. So turning this into action, ensuring that autistic people are included. And what do we mean? What do I mean by that is um, right now there's a lot of buzz buzz wording around diversity, equity and inclusion. Yes, Um, yes, yes. but, But to me, diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. It's not the same thing. Uh-huh. Right. So you can be in the room, but it doesn't mean anybody's listening to you or anybody's making an effort to include you in what's happening. So that's where we're not at yet, I think, here in, in, in the U.S. I mean, definitely, you know, but, but so much of the narratives up until a few until recent years has been around parents, has been around parents of, of neurotypical parents of autistic children. So now there's a shift slowly happening. To, to have autistic people be in charge of their own narratives and telling our own stories. That's also not even getting into autistic people who are parents themselves, autistic parents of autistic children. They, they exist too, and they need support too. So that, that the whole narrative is only just now beginning to shift a little bit, but we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're not, we're still not there. Is any of your coaching slash therapy done one-on-one? Yes, yeah, so it's all it's all done one on one. There's I I, I haven't well, done you're giving speeches and you're offering um, courses oh, oh. or whatever. That's obviously a group activity. Oh yes, yes. So, but yes, my my uh, my uh, mentoring and consulting services are done one on one. I I do them over Zoom now. Um, I right. have been doing them. I have been doing them at my office, which I I no longer have at the moment. So I'm sort of between offices, but I I do consultations over Zoom also. And what is what is the thrust of that? Um, oftentimes, I have parents writing to me, parents wanting you know me to to know if I can help with their with their child, their teenage child who's on the spectrum, or their young adult child. So I I do also meet with clients. I currently have a regular client that I meet with who is an adult on the spectrum, and we we talk about anything that's on her mind, anything that she wants advice on, or if she just wants somebody to listen. So. It depends on what the client's need is, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you hopeful? Are you feeling that you're in a good place when it comes to where all this is today versus years ago? Have we made great strides? Do you see a real shift in the paradigm? Well, the way that I know the paradigm has shifted is that um, when I was younger, I had moments where I was happy 
but I wasn't happy overall. My, my, wor- my view of the world, my view of myself wasn't happy. And now I am so full of happiness, I could burst. I am, my, my view is happy. I am, I feel light. I feel lifted. Um, I, optimistic? I, 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 I've always been optimistic. I call myself a failed pessimist because, uh, <laughs> okay. and, and I am, I'm, I'm optimistic because when, when you from an early age see kind of the worst in people, it automatically makes you kind of look for the best. So that's how I am anyway. And so I always want to look for the best. I always want to believe that that things can can and will get better. And and I recognize that good in people only because I I was forced to see the bad from so young. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I I am hopeful. I I I think that kids on the spectrum now today have a, a better chance than I did. Certainly, I think there's so much more uh, awareness and, and and things than there was when I was a kid. By by a mile. Um, but the work isn't done. The work, the work is not over. It, you know, and so we have to, we have to keep pushing. We have to keep fighting um, because I often hear a lot of, you know, folks saying that, you know, the, the world, the world needs to change for us. And, and I agree to some extent, I agree that we as autistic people are often made to bend and conform and try to fit into this world. And it would be great, you know, if, if the world could change and try to accept us more and be, more, more open and, and all that. But I, I often look at it as I have to help people to exist and thrive in the world as it is now, not the mm-hmm. world as I wish it were. Mm-hmm. I believe in my mind and I try to live in the world as if it were what I want it to be. But I know that I have to do what I can to help people thrive and exist in this world as it is now. So this is only where we're starting. And I, I still look to where we're going and I think it will be a good place. As we wrap this up, is there anything that you would like to do that you haven't done? Not necessarily fantasy, but where are we today with you? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I certainly would like to publish my book. I'm, I'm hopeful that that will happen soon. And uh, I, I would love to do a one-woman show on Broadway. I've had people say to me that I should do a one-woman show. And I, I would be thrilled to do that. I think that would be super that awesome. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a <laughs> lot of sense. Would that be something you would seriously entertain? No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. I obviously want to have input into the, the, the script and whatever it's going to look like and all that. And it would, I'd have to figure out exactly what it will be. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not against it. I mean, in the job I'm in right now at, at Rutgers, I'm still figuring out certain things and trying to find my my place there because I started it in March of 2020, right when the pandemic was hitting. So I was remote for like over a year and a half and I didn't even meet a lot of my coworkers. Yeah, that a, sucks. A yeah. few months ago. Yeah. So I'm still trying to, you know, figure things out with that. And then I'm also looking at the possibility of going for my doctoral degree at some point in, in, um, in what I don't know yet exactly, but <laughs> I'm... I've been thinking about that, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally in favor of the idea of a one woman show. I think if people, if people would come, I, I hope people would come. Oh man. <laughs> well, I would certainly help to get the word out. I mean, that, that to me on some level is a no brainer. You know what? It was a, just a sheer delight to meet and get to know you and, oh. and you're going to come back. One woman Thank show you. notwithstanding, you know, we, there's <laughs> always, there's always time and room for a part two. You really are inspirational again i don't mean to to be gushing all over you but i mean i was very attracted to this in the film and when i met you in the talk back there's a 
honesty. This is who you are and you're really proud of who you are. And that's contagious and, and very empowering. I really appreciate it. I wish you continued success and joy in your life. And again, it's been a real delight to meet and get to know you. Thank you so much, Sandy. And if anyone wants to find out more, you can find me online, amygravino.com and on Twitter uh, at amygravino, Instagram, amy.gravino. So I'm, I'm all over the social media. So thank you so much for having me. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.